Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. I'm your host today, Father Miles Hickson. And my guest for this episode is Ken Myers. Ken is host and producer of the well-known Mars Hill Audio Journal. He is a regular contributor to Touchstone Magazine and author of the volume All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes, subtitled Christians in Popular Culture. And last but certainly not least, he is the music director at All Saints Anglican Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. Ken, welcome to The Sacramentalist. Thanks very much. I'm grateful to be able to talk to you. On today's episode, I will be interviewing Ken about the music that we have as Christians in the life of the church and in our own devotional life. And so to kick things off, I want to begin by asking about the development of cultural attitudes and thoughts towards music. Just as a shift has occurred in the past 50 to say 70 years regarding any number of topics, probably most obvious sexuality, has there been a significant cultural shift towards music, Ken? Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> the, the longer answer is that the, the shifts in understandings about music and practices about music started long before the, the uh, cultural changes in, in the 20th century. Um, particularly, uh, people often talk about the, the, the 1960s as a big cultural shift. Uh, but changes with regard to music were well underway already in the 18th century. Uh, during the time of the Enlightenment. I, I, I should say here that when I am asked to address this issue in, in church settings, I, I, I always like to begin by saying it doesn't do any good for us to th- talk about or think about or argue about music in the, in the life of the church or in personal devotion without first understanding music as such. Uh, because I think that what, well, one shift that has happened beginning probably in the 19th century, maybe even earlier, there was a time when the music that was sustained in the life of the church shaped the musical experience of people Monday through Saturday. So, and in fact, the whole Western musical tradition is not understandable apart from the role that music played in the church. So the church was the first place in which uh, musical wisdom was pursued and musical practices were, were cultivated. Uh, and the, the culture outside the church uh, benefited from that. That has shifted, and, and th- th- that's become uh, topsy-turvy. And again, I think that, that begins maybe as early as the Reformation, but certainly by the Enlightenment. The church is culturally marginal with regard to almost all cultural forms of expression. With music, uh, a shift occurs uh, with the rise of the concert hall in the 18th century, uh, and maybe even a little earlier. You have opera beginning in the 17th century. So the, the music that people experience is experienced in a civic or secular setting and not in the life of the church. So gradually, over the course of time, the social situation or social situatedness of music has shifted. Probably more significant, though, are the philosophical shifts that occur simultaneously. In modern thought, we move from creation to nature. Uh, we move from a confidence that... Uh, the things we experience on this world uh, are, first of all, creatures, and secondly, uh, in some way, revelatory. So that the experience of creation was seen as a kind of epiphany. Gradually, beginning in the 17th century, the things of creation are seen as meaningless mere matter, and uh, as uh, material resources uh, that can be the raw materials for our making things to suit our own wills. So you have a number of related philosophical shifts, both among deliberate philosophers, people actually doing philosophy uh, and doing theology, but also kind of intuitively, the, the kind of uh, intuitive assumptions that people have about reality. And this is profoundly significant for music because music was understood from hundreds of years before the birth of Christ uh, in in the uh, Greek tradition, but not just in the Greek tradition. You find similar ideas in Eastern thought in uh, in China and I think in India also. Music was assumed to express something of the order of the cosmos. Music was not just pleasant sound that 
that we could enjoy. But music was considered a kind of uh, revelation of, of, of cosmic order. And that's, that's true well into the modern period. A book that I've really benefited from a lot, a book by Julian Johnson, who's a composer and music critic from England, a book he wrote, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago called Who Needs Classical Music? Uh, by the way, I don't like the term classical music. I was, <laughs> I'll just have to say that I think it it raises more problems than it solves. But uh, he points out that uh, today in, in modern Western cultures, it's assumed that individual taste is entirely subjective and in a sense, self-authenticating. So if I like this particular kind of music or this particular performer or this particular musical work, that, that's an unassailable commitment. And there's no sense in which my tastes need to be trained so that I'll love what I should love. And as, as Johnson points out, he says, to an earlier age, our contemporary idea of a complete relativism in musical judgment would have seemed nonsensical. One could no more make valid individual judgments about music than about science. Music was no more a matter of taste than was the orbit of the planets or the physiology of the human body. And then he says, from Plato to Helmholtz, and he mentions uh, Helmholtz who lived between, uh, well, lived until 1894. So about, for about 2,500 years, in other words, from Plato to Helmholtz, music was understood to be based on natural laws and its value was derived from its capacity to frame and elaborate these laws in musical form. Its success was no more a matter of subjective judgment than the laws themselves. Now, it's interesting that he cites Helmholtz, who's, uh, who, who is a musical theorist, among other things. He did work in other sci in sciences. I think he developed a theory of color or something. But, um, so that's late 19th century. Until then, the idea that was there was objective meaning in music, and more broadly, objective meaning in all the things of creation, was just a given. And it shaped how artists worked, and it shaped how the work of artists was received in society and in the life of the church. Now, what what he doesn't add here is that there was a, a lot of theological heavy lifting done about music from, well, you see some of it in Augustine, but for centuries, again, theologians spent time reflecting on the nature of musical meaning. Yeah, the philosophical shifts that are pretty much something that most civilians are unaware of, and even a lot of musicians today are not aware of, uh, composers would be, and some musical historians or musicologists would be aware of it. But I think as significantly, uh, the, the social shifts where the church is now a marginal second fiddle, if I can use a uh, <laughs> musical metaphor, if a second fiddle, as a church usually even invited into the orchestra. And music is constructed and distributed to serve largely commercial interests. Now, it's not that musicians haven't all been interested in getting paid. Uh, Bach is famous for complaining about not getting paid well. And, but the idea of using music for commercial interests and using music to titillate often or to soothe. Music is used kind of like psychopharmacology. It's used to either excite us or calm us down. And what excites us and what calms us down is, uh, is often considered subjective, although it turns out that some things actually are almost universally calming and some things are almost universally exciting. So it, it's not as subjective as people like to think it is. Uh, so those changes have occurred in the culture at large. And then uh, within the church, um, I've, I'm 67. I'm old enough to have seen a lot of changes with regard to church music. And uh, tied to church music, uh, what we might call worship style, which it may be a horrible term, uh, but we'll use it. And the changes, I think, I I've watched and participated in those changes, uh, somewhat enthusiastically, uh, later more grudgingly, and finally <laughs> uh, resisted uh, uh, rather emphatically uh, the changes that, had, that I had helped introduce back in the 60s and 70s. As the church itself, as Christian belief, became more marginalized in the culture at large, there was a shift in the 
latter part of the 20th century to try to make Christianity seem more relevant and the church's experience to seem more relevant. I had two uncles, three uncles, who were active church musicians back in the 40s and before that, probably. And one of them I talked to years ago, and he said, you know, it's interesting. We loved to listen to Benny Goodman, but we never thought we should bring his music into church. Hmm. So there's a shift in questions about the nature of propriety and the nature of what I might call aesthetic hierarchy. I grew up in the Christian and Missionary Alliance Church, pretty low on the liturgical food chain. We had a hymnal that was divided into three sections. There was hymn for morning worship. There were hymns for evening service, interestingly called that, uh, which were more informal hymns. And then there was hymns for informal occasions, explicitly said that. So there was, you know, this was a hymnal produced, I think, originally in the 30s or 40s. There was an assumption that there was a hierarchy of, let's call it liturgical experience, that some settings in which Christians would sing hymns was more formal than others. And so there were songs that we would sing at, at camp that we wouldn't sing at youth group. There were songs we would sing at youth group that we wouldn't sing in the evening service. And there were songs we'd sing in the evening service that we wouldn't sing in the morning service. That notion of propriety disappeared as notions of propriety at large have disappeared. There was a time in my lifetime, and I'm not that old, uh, when um, you would never wear blue jeans to church, or you probably wouldn't even wear blue jeans in public. There's an interesting story about the advent in the 70s of designer jeans that uh, I won't go into the whole detail, but it, it, when Jordache, the first manufacturer of designer jeans, tried to introduce them for sale in department stores, the buyers refused to purchase them because they said uh, no woman, no self-respecting woman would ever appear in public, even shopping or wherever, wearing blue jeans. That's just not done. They launched an ad campaign to persuade women that you could be chic and fashionable and respectable and still wear denim in public. Okay, that's just one example of many, many examples of shifting cultural attitudes toward formality, but I would say toward propriety and, and the careful crafting of something. So music was one of the settings in which, one of the conditions in which uh, informality and authenticity, if I can use that, I'll have to put quotes around that word, <laughs> was introduced. So the idea that you would actually study music and learn, you know, spend years mastering the craft of playing an organ or learning how to sing in order to express theological truths and uh, devotional commitments uh, well, that disappears because it's it's more important that you just are honest and just really sincere and just really authentic. And that's that's another huge cultural shift. One of my favorite books on the shift toward informality was by uh, linguist John McWhorter, who teaches now at Columbia. Uh, he was at Stanford when I interviewed him about his book, uh, Doing Our Own Thing. And the subtitle was The Degradation of Language and Music and Why We Should Like Care. And <laughs> I love the like yeah. in that subtitle. That's great. Uh, and, and his argument is that uh, the shift away from formality in public experience is an expression of uh, a, a mid-60s heightened suspicion about authority. Because to defer to any prior set of standards with regard to propriety or artistry uh, or formality, that's, uh, that's submitting to uh, an authority that pre-exists your own choosing. And so uh, in the 60s, the, the, we have an acceleration of the uh, idea that, that human autonomy and, uh, is the same thing as human dignity. So he argues that formality, in, particularly in language, but he does have a chapter on music, particularly looking at Broadway shows and the loss of careful art artistically constructed music in Broadway shows and in popular music more generally. I mean, if you compare the craftsmanship of a lot of uh, music from the 30s, popular music from the 30s, with, with what is crafted uh, today, um, I think you, you find 
that a lot of music, a lot of popular music relies on special effects, what we might call special effects, rather than harmonic progression, melodic subtlety, rhythmic uh, subtlety. Um, those things aren't really prized as they were by Cole Porter or uh, other composers of popular music. So all those shifts in the broader culture bring us to where we are today in, in the church's experience of music. And unfortunately, in most churches, most congregants don't expect to be tutored about music when they come to church. They don't expect to have their understanding of what music is and how we ought to use it adjusted in their experience of church, they might be willing to have something called church music presented to them, but as a special kind of category that doesn't have anything to do with what they do with music Monday through Saturday. But in fact, that's kind of a losing proposition. If you basically say, okay, we're going to try to set up barriers to preserve church music in a particular way. But what people do with music Monday through Saturday is their own business, and we have nothing to say about it. It's a little bit like saying we won't fornicate on Sundays, uh, but what people do sexually uh, is their own business, or, uh, or we won't commit adultery on Sundays. Uh, but you know what they do Monday through Saturday is, is their own business. So that's a long-winded answer to, uh, to your question about the changes that have, have occurred. No, I think that's great. It sounds like, if I'm hearing you correctly, peop, uh, listeners of our show will be familiar with the concepts of nominalism yes. versus realism. And it seems like right. that we've had a shift over, maybe since the Reformation, or, or even definitely after the Enlightenment, towards a nominalistic approach to music. Yes. And while there seems to be among particularly orthodox liturgical Christians in this country... Uh, a, a growing desire back towards realism and an understanding of realist categories behind liturgy and morals and etc. Is it fair to say that many Christians are inconsistent yeah. in applying that category to music? Absolutely. I'm always amazed at the kinds of inconsistencies that uh, occur with regard to music. I'm going to talk about nominalism, and I'm actually, since I've been told I have the gift of bibliography, I'll recommend a book for, for your listeners also. For sure. But Calvin Stapert, who taught music at Calvin College for many years, told me a story. He was in a class at Calvin, and Calvin College, they're Calvinists, okay? Uh, they're hardcore reformed, or more, more, more hardcore reformed. And they are not afraid of affirming the idea of original sin and, in fact, total depravity. And they're also eager to recognize how sin corrupts as every aspect of life. And so Cal was talking about how the, the prevalence of sin has corrupted our economic experience, it's corrupted politics, it's corrupted how we use technology, it's, a, it's corrupted relationships, it's corrupted families, it's corrupted music. And at that point, all of his students sat up in, in, in high dudgeon. <laughs> they couldn't, they, they would not assent to the idea that their musical lives had been corrupted by sin in some way. That somehow there was this remarkable pure state or pure zone of their lives, pure sphere, to use a Kuyperian word that my reform friends like, that was somehow immune from the effects of sin and didn't require any kind of redemptive clarity or, or, or uh, re either redemptive action or, or redemptive attention. And Cal was kind of uh, struck by this. I uh, thought this is kind of remarkable. Somehow musical experience is, is different from all other experience. Now that's, that's just one instance, but I think a lot of people, you know, the, uh, a more um, homey example, I know friends who, who would be very willing to chide their friends about their having bad taste in beer <laughs> or, uh, or bad taste in cheeses or bad taste in, in scotch or in cigars or, you know, name a list of things like that. I have artist friends who are quite willing to be candid in, in dissing Thomas Kincaid's schlocky painting. But, as, but when you mention music, in fact, I've had this experience with an artist friend who, who is actually an accomplished painter, and, and he has publicly spoken about the dishonesty that's present in Kincaid. And when I suggested that there are musical equivalents to Thomas Kincaid, he really balked at it. 
And so it, it's, and that's somebody who's actually read <laughs> Thomistic aesthetic works. But, and that shows the extent to which music is experienced by most people as a kind of a zone of uh, infallible subjectivity. Uh, where musical experience is, again, self-authenticating, and, and musical preferences are beyond, beyond criticism. So, yeah, so within a community that's trying to recover the consequences of philosophical realism, music may be the last horizon uh, in which that happens. And I've talked, with, I've talked with friends, brilliant friends who do philosophical theology and who have been fighting nominalism at, on various fronts. And they are often candid in saying that they just don't know anything about music. They wouldn't know how to recognize nominalism if they heard it or, or what patterns are there. So in those cases, they're willing, they're willing to entertain uh, the possibility that the same suspicion about transcendent order and the same suspicion about the interrelationship between nature and supernature, if I can put it that way, that, that affects other disciplines, uh, other spheres of life, has, has also affected our experience of music. One reason why clergy are nervous about even opening that door, in my experience, is that they're really afraid of losing their parishioners. Uh, I think that a lot of them are quite understandably afraid that if they put into practice, if they were as rigorous in embracing a pre-modern understanding of music as they are a pre-modern understanding of, say, hermeneutics, they can get away with that when they're interpreting the Bible. But they're not confident that they can persuade their parishioners to engage in practices that reflect a more realistic understanding of, of the nature of musical meaning. And, and I appreciate that because, really, they don't have enough time to undo the, the bad formation of musical taste that, that, that most of us uh, have experienced. I mean, it's not as if people are unformed musically and then they show up in church. They've been formed by musical experience from very early childhood. And, and the nature of that formation has, has followed, particularly people younger than myself. I, again, I said I'm 67. So I graduated from high school in 1970 when it was still uh, required to take courses in music. We, we had to learn to read music in public school. And there was still a sense of musical hierarchy. We, you know, I, we were interested in rock and roll and, and soul. I was actually a big Motown fan as a high school student. But... I was also singing Palestrina and Bach and Mozart. I knew intuitively that that music was much, much more important, much more valuable, and actually something I should learn, even if I didn't love it right away, it was something I should learn to love more than I like the music of, uh, of Motown, more than I like the Temptations or Smokey Robinson or whoever. And where we might be today is I'm reminded of the book Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns yeah. by Anderson that... Uh, he, he begins that book by saying part of the reason Johnny, your average boy or maybe even high school student today or girl, can't even sing a hymn is because it doesn't sound like music to yeah, them. Yeah, right. The, the gap between even when you graduated high school and oh, yeah. I graduated high school, which was 2008, and who's graduating <laughs> high school today, right. is that there has been such a de-evolution of musical education and appreciation right. that... It's hard when, when younger generations come into a church that's singing four-part harmony hymnody. Right. It doesn't even sound like music because right. they've never experienced it. Right. Yeah, they've never experienced it. So they've been badly formed. And one question I would ask, somewhat provocatively, I'll start by, by putting parents on the spot. Why do parents assume that it's okay not to supervise the shaping or formation of their children's musical tastes and basically turning them loose to discover what they like on their own terms. Now, a lot of parents get nervous when there's sexual imagery in, in, the, in the lyric, but the idea that children should be learned to appreciate a good melody or to understand how harmony works or to understand how to actually participate in harmony is just not even on their radar. Both sociologically and aesthetically, popular music has shifted remarkably, again, since 1970 when I, when I graduated from high school. Um, I go back every now and then and listen to some of the Lennon and McCartney m melodies. So uh, Michelle comes to mind, which, which, you know, that was written long before most of your prisoners were even born, probably. 
But it's a remarkably angular melody. It's very complex, and it actually has a strong sense of French popular song, which is related to French art music from early 20th century and 19th century. Another example of the, the loss of, uh, of musical literacy, there's a famous jazz album, I think from the early 60s, that Miles Davis, uh, the great trumpet player, his pianist on K- Kind of Blue was the album. His pianist was Bill Evans, and Bill Evans tells a story before they went in to record that. I think it's a quintet. Before they went to the studio to record, I think there are only five songs on that album. Uh, they were listening to music uh, of the French Impressionist composers, Debussy and Ravel. And uh, I, I recently listened to an interview that, that Miles Davis gave, uh, and he was talking about listening to Rachmaninoff. <laughs> so this is not, quote, classical music. It's a popular form, although jazz is probably better understood as an art form than a popular form. But interaction between the, the long-standing tradition of Western art music was still influencing, to some extent, composers like Lennon and McCartney and, and performers, composers like Bill Evans and Miles Davis. I don't know that that... I think it's still there to some extent for some popular composers, some popular uh, songwriters. But I think it's increasingly not present. One other shift that has occurred that I think uh, uh, is worth mentioning, uh, because I think it, it has, uh, it, well, it, it has theological significance. I, you know, I, I worked at National Public Radio as an arts editor between 1975 and 1983. I was at NPR. And um, when I started to work at NPR, there was still a strong sense that what public radio was about was preserving the best aspects of the Western artistic tradition, particularly. There was no morning edition. All Things Considered wasn't even on on the weekends. Uh, Public radio grew out of what was then called educational radio, and it was typically intended to sustain uh, the the music, the literature, the drama, uh, attention to uh, the visual arts, that were part of the Western tradition. It was a culturally conserving institution, as was the National Endowment for the, for the Arts. NPR and the NEA were both founded in the early 70s, so there still was a sense that, that the Western tradition was, uh, was something really valuable. And that's why there was still music education in schools and uh, uh, required courses in the arts and humanities in, in, in uh, universities and colleges. We, we need to remember that what we call the West really was Christendom. <laughs> the Western tradition of the arts and the Western tradition of philosophy uh, and the Western tradition even of political philosophy is really an expression of Christendom. It's not understandable or definable apart from that. So, uh, so part of the de-christening or unchristening, I think that's what C.S. Lewis calls it, the unchristening of the West. Part of the unchristening is that's that we've been that I've been living through, and that that you and and younger people ha- are are on the far side of. That unchristening increasingly, I, I think it's not entirely complete yet. <laughs> it's going to get worse. Treating the legacy of Christendom artistically and philosophically and we'd have to say theologically treating that legacy as uh, a, a burden uh, if, if, if not uh, an offense in some way. I think there is a powerful both uh, sometimes explicit and deliberate and sometimes implicit effort to, to, to move away from, from the pre-modern Western tradition across the board including in the arts. So that, again, the, 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 the people coming to a, a, an Anglican parish on any given Sunday morning are awash Monday through Saturday in a culture that is increasingly dispensing with uh, its cultural legacy and its cultural heritage and, and suspicious toward it. it. It has the burden of proof rather than the benefit of the doubt. It has to demonstrate that it's relevant to what we want to do now. Uh, rather than informing us about what we ought to do now. Uh, and, and that's part of, uh, 
I sometimes use the phrase post-culturalism, that it's not multiculturalism, or it's post-culturalism. That is, we're living at a time when the idea of gratefully receiving a cultural inheritance or a legacy, which is what it meant to be part of a culture, that's increasingly lost. I don't know how you recover a willingness to, uh, to uh, be informed by that the tradition. Um, Anglicans do a pretty good job on it with regard to theology and uh, liturgical forms. Um, processions are a really weird thing. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, they're, they're kind of unnatural and, and remarkably formal and uh, not authentic <laughs> in, in the modern sense. But uh, so there is, you know, there is that desire to, to, to recover that. And uh, but it's really hard to process to a uh, to a lot of contemporary praise music. It just doesn't lend itself to procession. Uh, and that's partly because uh, of, 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 the f of the form of construction that's there. And it, it's, it, you know, most most contemporary praise music is written as uh, solo voice ballad music. It's not meant for congregational singing. It's not meant for, for corporate singing. It's typically not meant for singing with harmonization. And it, it also tends to uh, insist on certain rhythmic patterns that really make it difficult, actually make it difficult for people to, they may feel at home with it, but it actually uh, makes it difficult to sing at, in a large group. So... I may have taken a turn in a different direction. <laughs> you can pull me back yeah. where you want to go. That's all right. Yeah. How about we um, we take it into even a different direction? I think that what you've laid is this wonderful foundation of kind of understanding music and the direction of music and musicality in our culture uh, and the shifts that have taken place. And so having that in our mind of just kind of factual evidence of what music has is, is, is gone through in the past number of years... I think now as Christians, we're poised to turn towards Scripture and seek, if there is one, a theology of music. Yeah. And well, so how does Scripture yeah. present music? Yeah. Well, um, I would say that uh, we, we need to understand music theologically within the context, first of all, of, uh, of understanding creation theologically. I think we, ha we have to start from a position of confidence about the meaningfulness of our experience of the aspects of creation, that they are that they are meaningful, and because music isn't just something we do, uh, music is something we, in in a sense, discover. Because there are there are sounds in the world, and the sounds have particular characteristics. So uh, a, a musical tone has a number of components. It it involves something vibrating at a specific frequency. Uh, and and it, that's what creates the sound. And it includes uh, something that, uh, that has a particular tonal quality so that um, a, 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 an acoustic guitar sounds different from an organ, which sounds different from a kazoo, which sounds different from, uh, I don't know, a harp. Um, so all those things have acoustic qualities. And, and those acoustic qualities themselves have a meaningfulness, which is not simply conventional. And so I'd, I'd say that we need to start from confidence, and, and, and that's not, I can't proof text that, but I think that overall the, 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 the vision of creation that's present in the scripture, particularly in the Psalms, presents creation as, and here I'll use uh, Alexander Schmemann uh, for the life of the world. He, he he suggests that all of creation is meant to be received as a gift and as an epiphany. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's first of all a gift, uh, and it has, it has a, a beautiful goodness about it. And secondly, it, it reveals something about God. It reveals something about God. Uh, so I think I want to start there. And then there are, but there are specific things that, that are mentioned I would say mentioned rather than argued about music, and I want to um, I want to suggest two two books here, if I may, and and essays within those books. Both of them are collections of essays by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, Ratzinger who became Pope Benedict, who uh, 
I think his writing about liturgical issues is some of the most, some of the richest material from the 20th century. And there are two books in particular. One is called The Feast of, the Feast of Faith, Approaches to a Theology of the Liturgy. Uh, and the second one is called A New Song for the Lord, Faith in Christ and Liturgy Today. Now, I think the contents of both of those, Ignatius Press is, has started publishing a complete works of Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, and I think the very first volume they've brought out are his writings on liturgy, interestingly, that they've decided that's, that's where they want to start. And so I think the essays that I'm going to mention here uh, are both in that more expensive, nicely <laughs> bound, hardback <laughs> edition, which, um, which you can save up your money and buy. I don't have that, <laughs> sorry to say. Uh, in the first book, The Feast of Faith, there's an essay called On the Theological Basis of Church Music. And uh, it's an essay where uh, he, he examines the dilemma of uh, art music versus what some have called utility music. That is stuff that does something practical in the worship service. He looks at that. And that's, that's a useful essay. But the essay that's most interesting to me for uh, particularly for what you've asked. He has an essay called Church Music as a Theological Problem in the Work of Thomas Aquinas and the Authorities He Cites. <laughs> and he goes on and basically says, you know, uh, we need to be honest that uh, the tradition hasn't always been really as enthusiastic about music. Uh, the patristic tradition and even the medieval tradition, Aquinas... Uh, isn't as uh, confident about music's uh, capacity of meaning uh, as as Cardinal Ratzinger would have liked and as some of us may have liked. Now, of course, that may be partly a function of the fact that when, when Aquinas is writing, uh, music as he experienced it was remarkably, still remarkably primitive. It took a long time for musicians in the church to actually, uh, the way I understand, the way I see it or hear it, it took it took a while for them to understand what some of the capacities of musical meaning were. And it's really not until the 15th century, 16th, uh, well, 14th and 15th century, that some of those capacities, which I think of as Trinitarian capacities of the use of harmony, begin to be pursued in, in a deeper way. So Aquinas can be excused because he hadn't ever heard Palestrina or Josquin <laughs> Dupre. So so we'll give him we'll give him a pass. But the the thing that um, he, what what Ratzinger does do is is look at um, uh, themes in Aquinas about how does the gospel describe the spiritualization or the logosization, and I'm making that word up of the world. How does the presence of the Spirit after Pentecost and, and the reality of the Incarnation, how do they change our understanding of how creation itself can in some way enjoy, even before the eschaton, enjoy a kind of glorification? And so he looks at what he calls spiritualization. And I'm going to read just a couple sentences here. Towards the end of the essay, the whole of church history can be seen as the struggle to achieve the proper kind of spiritualization. And although musically speaking, the theologian's Puritanism was frequently unenlightened. So he's basically acknowledging a lot of the patristics. They were kind of Puritans. They were, they were nervous about music. And, but he says it was unenlightened. They, they will excuse him. The fruit of this struggle, that is the fruit of the struggle to achieve the proper kind of spiritualization, has been the great church music of the West, indeed Western music as a whole. The work of a Palestrina or a Mozart would be unthinkable apart from this dramatic interplay in which creation becomes the instrument of the spirit, and the spirit too becomes organized sound in the material creation thus attaining a height inaccessible to pure spirit. Now, that's a very interesting point, that, that uh, because there are 
Puritans <laughs> who, who want to say, well, we have to worship God in our hearts. We worship God in our hearts. Uh, you know, Ulrich Zwingli was famous of saying you know, he didn't want any music because uh, he, he was kind of a, a, a Gnostic about the experience of praise, that we had to praise God. The purest praise was the praise, the inaudible praise of the, of the, of the heart of a, of a believer. And what uh, Ratzinger is suggesting is that uh, actually when the spirit enlivens the material world, that this is, he says, it attains a height inaccessible to pure spirit. Uh, so that's one essay, and I would, again, encourage, because he does, and again, it's more philosophical theology than the kind of biblical text that you've asked me to produce. <laughs> No, that's quite all right. But, uh, but I do want to mention an, another essay of his in which he does go into uh, greater depth and uh, pulls a lot out of a particular psalm. And it, I think it's my favorite of his essays that deal with music and liturgy. It's called Sing Artistically for God, Biblical Directives for Church Music. And this is in that other volume that I mentioned, uh, A New Song for the Lord. And he looks particularly at, at Psalm 47. I actually wrote a piece about Psalm 47. Uh, my most recent piece in Touchstone was about various settings of Psalm 47, uh, musical settings uh, of it that are really remarkable. And that's, it's a short psalm. It's only nine verses. And it's, it's the one that starts, Oh, clap your hands together, all ye peoples. Oh, sing unto God with the voice of melody. And I'm reading from the Coverdale Psalter in our prayer book. Uh, and there's a lot about singing here. Uh, th th this text, by the way, is, is read uh, at, at the Feast of uh, the Ascension. God has gone up with a merry noise and the Lord with the sound of the trump is a, te a text that's in the propers for the Ascension. And then verse 7, For God is the King of all the earth. Sing ye praises, and here the Coverdale Psalter, Sing ye praises with understanding. Now, just hold, hold on to that for a minute. Um, that's very similar to a passage. I thought I had a Bible handy. I put it in some convenient place and now promptly have it covered over with other things and can't see it. But in, in, uh, in Psalm, uh, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, uh, St. Paul says something very similar. He says, I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my understanding as well. Now, some people, because it's in the context of a debate about whether or not speaking in tongues should be allowed in worship, some people say, well, he's just talking about the words. He's not talking about what we call the notes. Or, but I think that that's uh, to under, undersell the fact that even before words are added, uh, music has a, a kind of intelligibility. Music has meaning. Sound has meaning. Uh, the musical sound has meaning before the words are added. And uh, so I think that there is, in both of those texts, an affirmation of a, a Christian duty to, um, to bring into our, our, our experience of, of music, particularly in, in worship, a, an attentiveness to the nature of intelligibility and, and how music itself can be intelligible. And that's something that I... You know, we we ha we understand better now. We have the capacity to understand that better than Saint Paul did, or than the Israelites did, because of the fact of the theological reflection that happened since the first century. Reflection about creation ex nihilo. Reflection reflection about the Trinity. Reflection about the incarnation. All of which had musical consequences. Had consequences in how music began to be formed. Uh, so we can understand that better than they did. One thing I often mention when I lecture on this topic is uh, the discovery in the late medieval period and then the, the development of it in the Renaissance of how uh, multiple lines, multiple vocal lines, three or four or five or six or seven or more singers singing different mel mel melodies uh, in parallel with each other, uh, in 
actually technically in counterpoint with one another, how that could achieve a, a level of meaning that was that transcended, that surpassed uh, what happened when when people sing just in strict harmony like we do when we sing hymns. So the discovery of polyphony, I'm convinced it's a Trinitarian discovery. It's a discovery about uh, the, the one and the many. It's a discovery about the, how unity and and multiplicity can coexist and, and actually the, how the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts. So anyway, that, what, what is said in Psalm 47 uh, and said in 1 Corinthians 14, I think, it suggests that we ought to consider the possibility of uh, a heightened intelligibility in, in, in musical expression. Let me read a little bit from from uh, Cardinal Ratzinger's essay here. He, he looks at different translations of Psalm 47, 7. Uh, one translation by, um, by Buber and Rosenzweig actually uh, works out to play as an inspiration. One French translation says, uh, sing an art song. <laughs> Uh, in the Jerusalem, the French translation, actually, the, the French translation of the uh, Jerusalem Bible, play for God with all your heart. Uh, with, excuse me, with all your art, not heart. <laughs> play for God with all your art. Uh, that is, with all your skill. And he looks at a number of other translations that, that try to capture uh, what's implied in, uh, in that text. And he points out that the very first word in that in that uh, verse, Psalm 47, 7, is, is the Hebrew word zamir. He said it's based on a Semitic stem that emphasizes articulated singing, a singing with reference to a text which is instrumentally supported but always ordered to a specific statement in regard to content. Thus, and here is Ratzinger, Zamir stands clearly apart from orgiastic cult music, which serves to intoxicate the senses, and which, through the frenzy of sensual feelings, carries people away in the ecstatic liberation from mind and will. In contrast, Zamir refers to logos-like music, if we can put it that way, which incorporates a word or word-like event it has received and responds to it in praise or petition in thanksgiving or lament. Now that's, I'd encourage you to read the whole essay. But he wants to say, if the Logos is the source of all meaning and creation, and here I'm thinking of Colossians 1, uh, 17, I think it is. If the Logos is the source of all coherence in creation, and I would say intelligibility, then the possibility of musical in intelligibility. As we pursue that and develop it and deepen it, I, I think we, we actually begin to perceive uh, a, 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 what he says a Logos-like event uh, in the music, even before the words are added. So those are, are two different approaches, uh, one of which uses more philosophical theology, one, and, but in uh, Ratzinger, he, he's using just looking at that one text. It, it's, it's notable that besides feasting, <laughs> music is the only cultural activity we know for sure we're going to do for eternity. <laughs> mm. There's a hymn in our hymnal that talks about uh, the, the fact that... Um, We'll be singing for all of eternity, and since we're going to be doing it forever, we might as well get good at it now. Uh, <laughs> so, so, um, so the fact that this is a cultural activity that we know is uh, suitable for uh, that eschatological uh, uh, experience—the fact that we're singing every, you know, whenever we sing God's praises, we're singing with the angels and all the company of heaven. That suggests that there's a capacity in music for an experience of some transcendent order that I don't think is promised to us or alluded to us in, in any other mode of, of, uh, of, of artistic form. Uh, and if that's the case, then, then we ought to ask, are we working hard to understand how it is that music communicates so that we're open uh, to all of those uh, uh, capacities for intelligibility? 
or are we just, uh, you know, skimming the surface? Are we, uh, you know, I think of the line in The Weight of Glory, I think it is, where C.S. Lewis says, we're far too easily pleased. Mm. Uh, are we, with regard to musical experience, far too easily pleased? Uh, and uh, again, the church was the place in Western culture and to some extent in uh, uh, the church in the East also, where uh, the, the capacities of creation to to represent and present God for us to participate in transcendence with our bodies. This was the place where th that was pursued most, uh, most thoroughly. And the, the musical tradition of the West was launched with and nurtured with that understanding that this was uh, this was this is what music could do. I'm bemused, <laughs> bewildered, bewitched, bothered, and bewildered. Actually, to, uh, that that uh, that people aren't more curious about why music had such a high standing, why it had this understanding, and maybe maybe that. The f maybe our musical experience in, in the first part of the 21st century has deprived us of um, capacities and experiences that th uh, that we don't you know we don't even know about, and uh, that that's what I uh, you know I think again that phrase far too easily pleased that's in the context where uh, Lewis says that. Um, he compares us to a, a, a little child who's making mud pies and can't, you know, in a, in a mud puddle and thinks that's fun and can't imagine what a holiday at the sea would be like. <laughs> uh, you know, we're 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 satisfied with petty experiences, and he he talks about it in the context of the experience of glory, our glorification. Um, so uh, again, I think music experienced in a fuller way has the capacity to anticipate that that glory uh, much much more so than uh, sheer utilitarian or psychopharmacological use of music does yeah wow well thank you that was a beautiful explanation of of kind of the the, the sacramental nature of music as presented in scripture as an understanding unto itself so kind of concluding our our conversation then um could we move towards the practical and uh, I have two questions and they're they're related what would you say Ken are maybe healthy music habits and how does one begin forming them yeah. and then kind of the flip side of that would be what should perhaps parishes or, or family units do to educate sustain and yeah. promote beautiful music so just practically well first of all I think that Clergy really should know how to read music. They should learn how to read music. And it's interesting in the Orthodox Church, because of the fact that the priests have to chant so much of the liturgy, there are basically conservatories tied to every seminary. And uh, I, I think in most, in most theological education for ministry, uh, I, there, I don't know what your experience was, but... Um, I don't think that uh, musical literacy is considered part of the requirements for the job. Oh, right. I, I even had a friend in seminary. He, he was a uh, classical guitar major in undergrad. Yeah. And when we were at seminary together, he's now an Anglican priest, he was really bothered that we had a graduate school of music next door to our seminary. Yeah. And there was zero overlap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also have argued for years that seminaries should include uh, a pretty significant time given to uh, the study and the writing of poetry. People, people get really satisfied with really crummy poetry also. So I think, uh, you know, what makes the greatest hymnody... Uh, and by and, and not just hymnody in the kind of post Charles Wesley, Isaac Watts era, but even the medieval office hymns, Veni Creator Spiritus, things like that. What makes hymnody great is 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 the poetry tied to m mode of musical expression, that w where they work together really well. So I'd say that clergy should learn how to read music, and they should spend a lot of time hanging out with good poets, uh, re studying their poetry. Uh, and uh, uh, that shouldn't be too painful, I don't think. Uh, so I'd 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 start with that, and then then the other thing I think it's it is all too common for people to never uh, listen to music without doing something else. 
we typically use music as a background div- uh you know as it sets a kind of ambience uh most serious musicians i know can't listen to music while doing something else they s- certainly can't listen to music while they read because it's like trying to read two books at once it's like trying to read one book with your left eye and one book with your right eye now of course if you're if you're used to having uh, really superficial, trite, banal music, uh, that's easier to study to or, or, or read to. But if you're actually paying attention to, to music that is deliberately meaningful and artfully constructed of any genre, uh, it deserves attentiveness. You know, I've heard lots of stories about people who never bothered listening to music, and actually when they did listen to the music they liked, they realized they didn't like it as much because it, it, it actually turned out to be a lot more vapid and empty than, than they felt comfortable with. And that's not, that's not a, a, a hard thing to, to, to listen intelligently. Uh, it, it helps if you can read music and then follow along with a score. If you're listening to, you know, there's the music that our choir sings, 98% of it is in public domain and you can find scores for it. Uh, you know, most of the church most of the liturgical music repertoire is public domain so you can listen to uh, a lot of great uh, church music and follow the music along uh, reading the music along and and you'll see you'll begin to see uh, and hear well you'll hear things aided by your perception of the nature of the construction of the music I have a friend who who teaches he actually attends our, our church uh, he teaches middle school boys, junior high school boys, I think, what we used to call junior high school. And he once uh, took time in a class to ask them about what music they like and why they liked it and got them to articulate, why do you like this music? What is it in the music that you like? And just to, to do that yourself, so say, okay, here, here's music I really like listening to. And then ask yourself, why do I like it? What is it about the music that I like? And then ask, you know, following Augustine's concern for Ordo Amoris, do I like it more than I should? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because, th- th- and this is this is a thing, you know, musical taste isn't binary. It's there's a lot of music that is likable, but maybe not lovable, and there's some music that's lovable that may not be adorable or marvelous, and so uh, we we should cultivate and be aware of a kind of hierarchy of musical value in our experience and and then learn to respect it and then say well okay if i like if this is something really worth liking really worth loving then what other music is that i'm not even familiar with that also has similar and may actually take me f- further up and further in mm-hmm. uh so so th- so uh, again in a sense all those things I've suggested are, are, are all along the lines of uh, just being more attentive to musical experience. Um, uh, one thing I do often is when I'm in public and there's canned music being played on the, on the sound system, ambient music, is I'm always interested in listening, well, what music is being chosen and what, what are the musical capacities? What's, what's going on? What's being communicated in this music? And that's something you could do, you know, anytime. You can basically say, well, why, what, how, how is this, how is this piece of music communicating its, its meaning? Uh, it's, it's really amazing how frequently today, when there, there's a lot of commentary about music, po- about popular music online and in other places, but it's also, it's almost never about the music. It's usually about the words. Uh, and there are some good music critics uh, uh, who do pop music criticism who, who really pay attention to how, how music is communicating. So actually, that would be another thing. Fi- find some good critics who write about music a- a- attentively. And, and uh, you know, I've been subscribing for years to uh, the BBC has a monthly magazine. Uh, it's just called BBC Music Magazine. They have a, a website. Now, some of it's written for people who know a lot more, but it, it's a good introductory thing. I started reading when I was in high school. I started reading, there was a, uh, 
there was a magazine called Stereo Review, which was which combined reviews of stereo equipment, which I lusted after as a teenager, uh, <laughs> and very informative essays about classical music and jazz. And I learned a ton from those. Uh, and, but when I started, I didn't understand 90% of what I was reading. I didn't understand it. But uh, it, it's like anything else. If you if you if you started reading articles about cricket, uh, <laughs> you probably wouldn't understand any of it. But over time, you, you begin to uh, to perceive it. So those are a few things in terms of practices, uh, personal practices. Uh, well, I should also add, uh, get in the habit of singing with other people, and and learning how to sing parts. W one thing we're doing in our parish is helping people learn how to sing in harmony with one another, because most of the hymnody we sing lends itself to that. And actually, uh, it, it's a very rich experience when you sing in harmony with people. First of all, singing with others, uh, a friend of mine said, when we sing together, we make each other's bodies vibrate, uh, which is uh, a wonderful, if cre sl slightly creepy <laughs> image, but uh, so there's, there's a mutual experience of, and kind of a, there's a participation, uh, a, a co-participation in the experience. But when we sing harmony with one another, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. When, when, when I'm singing with people who know how to sing different parts, uh, we, are, we are upholding one another. We're giving a gift of this other melodic line or harmonic uh, component that actually enriches their singing of their part. Uh, and uh, and so the two things are not experienced autonomously or individualistically. They, they really it really is. I I I often say that that harmony is love made audible. So harmony uh, is an audible. This is a very sacramental idea. Harmony is an audible experience of that transcendent reality that love is. And uh, and that's why I think the Western tradition. Uh, as opposed to music from, say, China or India or the Islamic music, uh, tr music inspired by a Trinitarian foundation, music built on a Trinitarian foundation, has the richest harmonic experiences. Uh, and I think, uh, I think it's because of the, f of the centrality of, the, again, this is, this is uh, uh, an analog of love in harmony. So I think learn... Learn enough about music so that you can sing in harmony with family members or with other people in your parish. Mm. I think that's a that's a beautiful explanation of I love that ending on Trinitarian exaltation in our harmonic singing. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Ken, for being with us today. Now, if our listeners want to engage with you in your work, particularly on music, how they can they keep up with you? Yeah, well. Um, First of all, you mentioned the columns I've been writing for years on, on touch, in Touchstone, and they are uh, a series that I've been doing on sacred choral music. Uh, I decided I was writing a column just on general cultural issues, but um, I asked the editors, can I write just on sacred choral music because no one else is doing it consistently and basically introduce people to, uh, to the tradition, everything from... Uh, early Renaissance music up through 20th century. I, I wrote a piece not long ago about James Macmillan, who is a composer, a uh, living composer uh, in Scotland, Roman Catholic composer. So that, uh, and some of those pieces are, are published on the Touchstone website. Well, subscribe to the magazine. I should say <laughs> subscribe, I should say that, uh, because there's a lot of other good things in the magazine as well. Some of them have been published on a on a website that I maintain as part of a music education for our parish. It's canticasacra.org, uh, C-A-N-T-I-C-A-S-A-C-R-A.org. And um, that contains quite a hodgepodge of material, uh, some uh, of the articles I've written, some texts from lectures I've given, uh, interviews I've done for Mars Hill Audio about music, um, there are links to other uh, online resources, and then um, the main the main body of the work has been uh, my effort to explain to our congregation 
the music that we're singing that week. So I've been doing this for years, uh, discussing the hymnody and the the choir's music, uh, and and then introducing them to music that I would love the choir to sing, but we can't. (laughs) Right now we can't because the choir's not singing in our services because of our uh, our, uh, abbreviated non-musical services. Uh, so I'd say that that's uh, you know I'm I'm doing I'm putting a lot of material up there and hope to continue to put even more available there. Well, thank you. Well, dear listeners, if you like what we're doing here, help others people find us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes wherever you get your podcast and share us with your friends. If you want to continue the conversation with us about this episode or any others, follow us on Twitter and join our Facebook discussion group, and please let us know what you think. And you can support The Sacramentalist over on Patreon for just $5 per month. You can join the great communion of Patreon saints. And as we continue to do this season, we're developing some great events and stuff for people who are Patreon supporters. And as always, you can email us with your feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalist at gmail.com. Thank you again, Ken, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Take care. And now may the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Amen.